World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the Americhicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Uh, we are thrilled to share the stories of our men and women who have served us uh, to keep us safe, to keep us free. And uh, this show precipitated from a trip that I took in 2016 with four D-Day veterans. We went back to Normandy for the D-Day celebrations and returned back to the U.S. realizing that we need to capture these stories. So we've interviewed over 100 World War II veterans, and you can find those interviews on my website, americhicks.com. Be sure and sign up for my emails uh, at americhicks.com forward slash Kim, and we will keep you apprised of all of the uh, upcoming guests. Uh, but we have decided to start to expand into some of the other conflicts as well, the other wars and conflicts, uh, the Korean War, the Vietnam War. And I am thrilled to have in studio with me uh, uh, Sergeant, is it retired Sergeant or former Sergeant? Yes, former. former Sergeant Paula Sarles. Uh, uh, you were a Marine. Yes. Wow. I am a Marine. You am a Yeah, once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine, yes. right? Yes. You know, uh, we, I had the great honor to interview a, a mutual friend, Jim Blaine, and uh, he was one of the guys at Iwo Jima. And I asked him why he signed up to be a Marine, and he said because the motto was first to fight. So what made you to become a Marine, Apollo Sarles? Well, I was raised to be patriotic, and during the... Um, conflict, the Vietnam conflict, there was a lot going on in the country. And two things really propelled me. One was up with people. I went to a show they did, and it was very patriotic. And John Kennedy's speech about ask not what you can do for your country, or what your country can do for you, but what you can do, um, really got me thinking about what is it that I can do And my two older brothers tried to join, and they couldn't for medical reasons. And so I said, well, I could do that. And then I met a recruiter at a job I had, and that was the beginning. (laughs) You know, that was quite a time. Now, you grew up right here in Colorado, right? Yes, southwest Denver. Okay. And just a note, uh, I actually traveled for a year with Up With People. Oh, and uh, so yeah, I, I know all the songs, and I'm I'm like with you. It was very inspiring to do so, but to step up and serve your country. What year was it when you uh, joined the Marines? 1967. Boy, the country was in turmoil at that it time. Was. What do you remember about that, Paula? Well, we had the Watts riots when I was in high school, and um, Vietnam. There was. A lot of conflict in the streets protesting the war and women fighting for equal rights and blacks fighting for their rights. And it was just every time you turned on the news, it was like today there was something going on that was um, tumultuous. That's the word I was thinking about as well. So for a young girl in 1967 to join the Marines, I mean, that's a pretty big deal, I think. Well, it was, and uh, I thought I could get an education because the recruiter told me all the fun things I'd do and that I would get a free education out of it. And so I thought, well, that's 
sounds pretty good. And um, I'd be doing something to help the country, too. Mm -hmm. So it just seemed like the right fit. Well, so you've joined the... Well, is there anything else you want to tell us about your family growing up in Colorado or anything else like that? Well, we were just a family of six children and we're pioneer family um, in Colorado and pretty very, very modest um, for what we had. At the time, I thought we were poor, but it's all relative. So, but in, interestingly enough, um, people, even though we were poor, my my um, grandparents were were poor. They didn't miss many meals, which is a, no. you know, which is a good thing. So, no, we never missed a meal, yeah. and uh, it just was a different time. And when I look back, I feel like I was very rich in love and fellowship with my family. Yeah, and th- those are really those are the things that really yeah. matter. Okay, 1967. I'm trying to think about this, that uh, your daughter goes off to the Marines in the war. What did your mother say to you? My mother wasn't happy. I bet she wasn't happy. And actually, nobody was really happy about it. My teachers were upset. I never heard from them when I was in school. They never even noticed I was there until I joined the Marine Corps. And then... And my mom had a whole different view of what women in the service were than what reality was. Well, let's talk a bit about reality. Uh, What was basic training like? Well, for us, it wasn't anything like it is today. Um, We had PT, but we ran 600 and some yards, and we did some push-ups and sit-ups and stuff. But it wasn't anything like it is today. So is it, uh, it's a lot more extensive today? Mm-hmm. Okay. We were the pretty face of the Marine Corps, and our motto was, be a Marine, free a Marine to fight. Wow. So we learned in boot camp the history, some of the history of the Marine Corps and stuff, and um, things like don't walk out the street with rollers in your hair or a cigarette hanging out of your mouth, mm-hmm. things like that mm-hmm. that... Today, we would just laugh at, mm-hmm. but it was a whole different world then. It was kind of a respect, though. Yes. It was kind of, uh, and you know, Paula, I think we need to to move towards it again, and that is good manners and civility manners, to each other. Yes. Uh, civility. That, civility, yeah. 1967, there wasn't a lot of civility, and, and, and I'm struggle with, on a kind of a national narrative, this lack of civility. However... You know, you walk uh, down the street and people with whatever the descriptor is, you know, man, woman, black, Hispanic, gay, whatever it is, people greet each other. It's important that we remember those manners today. Yes. And it'd be nice to bring that to the national narrative as well. So you're in boot camp. How long was that? It was eight weeks. And um, I went August 27th and I got out in October. And... And this was 1967? Yeah. Okay. It was at Paris Island. All the women, enlisted women, went to Paris Island. And I always said I was a real Marine. My husband went to San Diego. He was a Hollywood Marine. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a joke between us. And uh, the sand fleas was one of the worst parts of it. The heat and humidity, but the sand fleas were terrible. 
And if there's a bug within a mile of me, they find me. So that was very difficult to stand at attention with all those sand fleas around me. Nobody else got bothered because they all came to me. (laughs) I guess you did your duty. (laughs) You took one for the team. (laughs) Really? But you couldn't flinch then. No, you couldn't move. And they're biting me everywhere. But it was. You know, Paula, talk a little bit about discipline. Because uh, that's what I see with our service men and women, but particularly Marines, the discipline. I cannot imagine the discipline of being of standing there with you know sand fleas you know biting you. That I mean that's amazing discipline. And how has that affected you throughout your life? Well, I was raised with discipline. You, uh, when my mother spoke, you moved, and children were to be seen and not heard. <clears throat> so. When we went to dinner at a friend's house or something, we behaved ourselves. So you didn't see kids, for the most part, acting up like they do mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. And we were just taught to mind our manners and um, to be to each other, to be kind and not to fight and that kind of thing. And there was just a sense of discipline. You didn't want to disappoint your parents. Mm-hmm. And so... I, that just carried through, and mm-hmm. I didn't want to disappoint the drill sergeant. I wanted to get through it and be as good as I could. You know, that theme of doing your best, of excellence, uh, I, that's such an important thing that I think we need to to impart to our, ourselves and our next generation. Uh, in fact, I think I had a quote here. I think if I can find this. This was a Joe DiMaggio quote that I used just the other day. Let's let me see if I still have it, where he said, um, well, I don't have it here, but basically, ah, here we go. He said, the reason, this is Joe DiMaggio, the great baseball player, he said, the reason I play so hard is that somewhere out there is some kid who has never seen me play before, and I don't want to disappoint him. Yeah. You know, and that's a great way to live a life. So, it is. Anything else about basic training before we get into what happened after that? Well, um, we had a couple traumatic events there, and how so? Well, <clears throat> there were a couple girls that uh, tried to get out, run away. While well, you're on an island, you don't run away, and so they got caught and brought back. And the one tried it a, several times before. So they wanted to get out of the Marines. Yeah. Okay. And. They told us how bad the swamps were and that you couldn't get off the island, but they did it anyway. And eventually one of them tried to commit suicide. And The drill sergeant came in that night and said, you don't slice your wrists across, you slice it up and down if you really want to kill yourself. Oh, my gosh. So the next night, somebody succeeded. And it was... For somebody that was sheltered and I never went hardly anywhere and, you know, our family was our nucleus, that was a rude awakening. And then uh, I had like either a heat stroke or sunstroke, I don't know which, but I passed out in my bunk one night and they took me to the hospital And when I came to, I was in a bucket of ice, totally nude, and uh, nurses or something, male nurses around me, 
and that was really well, yeah. mortifying. Yeah. Is the only word I can think of. Um, and just as I came to, somebody, a doctor came in the door and scattered them out. But it was, uh, that was very traumatic to me. How did you keep going? Well, I think just the way I was raised. I grew up with four brothers and, you know, you just. Probably tough. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, mentally, I thought I was tough. Um, and I just, I didn't want to fail at what I was doing. So mm-hmm. I just kept going. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else about basic training? Okay, so what happens then after you get complete your basic training? Well, then we, um, I came home for a month, and then I went to, oh, I have to tell you this story. This major was fitting us for our uniforms, and she said, Private, you're not going to fit in this uniform in a month. And I said, yes, I will. She said, are you sassing me? And I said, no, (laughs) ma'am. And she was right. <laughs> and so I used, I told that story over and over again. And when I joined the Women Marines Association, I was at a convention. I'd become national president. And the lady that told me that was at the convention. And oh, my so gosh. So it was really funny. We got a laugh out of it. <laughs> so did the girls put on weight after that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Because... Like in the 60s, women didn't exercise like they do now. Okay. So you go to boot camp, you do all these exercises, and I was a perfect size 11. I had muscles that wouldn't quit. Yeah. I just really looked good. Yeah. And if you don't keep using all those muscles, they turn to flab. Yeah. That's what they say about muscles or rights or whatever. If you don't use them, you lose them. So. That's right. <laughs> Okay, so you're, you're through basic training now. So where do you go? Then I went to Millington, Tennessee. It's a naval air station. And people that had been tested in boot camp and determined that they would go in the airfield doing something went to Millington and tested further to decide whether they'd be aerologists or air controllers or mechanics or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we did a week of testing and they decided I would be a uh, an air controller and the school didn't start until January and I had to go through some other further testing like physical and mental and stuff so I did all that and I still had to wait a few weeks till school started so they put me in the supply office typing an SOP because, of course, women, that's all we could do was type. <laughs> so that's where I met my husband. Okay. And that's a romantic story. <laughs> okay. Well, we we want to hear that. Let's go ahead and start with that story then. We're going to go to break in a few minutes. But let's start with the story about how you met your husband, Tony, right? Yes, Tony. Okay. He was um, the sergeant in the supply office, and I was to work under him. And I would be sitting and typing, and I'd, you know, you feel somebody staring at you. And I turned around. Every time I would turn around and look, he would be winking at me. It was so distracting. Now, you didn't think this was sexual harassment, did you? No. Okay. No. 
And it was so because it was so cute, and we didn't even know what sexual harassment was then. It was just the way life was. Like so you say, were it was a different it was, world. It was nice that he was winking at yes, you. Yes, it was yeah. flattering. So it took him about two weeks, and then he asked me out on a date, and we went on a double date bowling. And on the way back, we walked alone back to the barracks, and they have a beautiful parade deck there with a gorgeous gazebo, and it was Christmas time, and they were playing Christmas music. Well, the year before, my oldest brother had passed away in a work accident. So I was kind of sad, and Tony sensed that. And he bends me over, gives me a big Clark Gable kiss, and I looked up at him, and I said, I'm going to marry you someday. (laughs) (laughs) And what did he say? He just laughed. So... um, I think he sort of thought the same thing because from then on it was like we just knew we were going to get married, but we went through ups and downs for because I went off to school in January and he went to Vietnam. And the next time we saw each other was 15 months later, the day before we got married. And we had broken up and got together through mail and sending tapes back and forth and stuff. Okay, so how long did you spend together before you went to school and he went to Vietnam? Well, physically in the same area and stuff, two weeks. Okay, so talk (laughs) about a romance. That's two weeks, a Clark Gable kiss, you're apart 15 months, and then you get married? Yeah. How long were you married? Almost 40 years. We were a couple months away when he died. Wow. Oh, gosh, we got to continue with this story. We're going to go to break, Paula. And before we do that, though, it is it's baseball season. It's summer and Hooters is the spot to be this summer and enjoy Hooters beach worthy seafood items like amazing fish tacos, delicious snow crab legs and mouthwatering buffalo shrimp. When the girls come over on Wednesday nights, that's what I get. And they love that. So Hooters has plenty of ice cold beer options to help you cool down this summer. And they have nine items for nine bucks, 11 to 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. You can choose from nine delicious menu items such as fish and shrimp tacos, salads, cheeseburger, Philly cheesesteak, and, of course, their boneless wings. So you can go in and dine in for that. Uh, some of these other things, you can get them to go. You can have them delivered right to your front door with Grubhub or any of those services. So be sure and check out uh, HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to continue with Paula Sarl's story. Uh, regarding uh, her her time in the Marines. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project, where we are sharing the stories of our men and women. Uh, not only now in World War II, we are adding in Korea and Vietnam as well. As many of you know, this show precipitated from a trip that I took in 2016 with a group that took four D-Day veterans back to Normandy for the D-Day celebrations. We came back, we realized... Every story is individual. Every story is so important. I am thrilled to have in studio with me right now former uh, Marine Sergeant Paula Sarles. In the first segment, we talked about boot camp, you meeting your husband. And uh, I'm a bit intrigued, Paula, with you knew each other for a couple of weeks, uh, and then um, you're separated for 15 months. And, of course, you didn't have cell phones and all back there. How how, How did you communicate during that time? We wrote letters, and we had reel-to-reel tapes. Um, 
they took forever to get back and forth. So actually when he proposed to me, I had four proposals. And from him? No, from my other, other. You have four <laughs> proposals from other guys yes. too. Oh my gosh! So <laughs> how did I, you decide? I went out and I got drunk, <laughs> and I called my dad, and he said, "Well, you just have to do what your heart tells you to do." So I wrote Tony a letter and told him I accepted his proposal, but I forgot about it, and so. Okay, so you because you got out and got drunk, you, and you said I, I, yes, yes, and you couldn't remember. Oh, okay. So um, that was in December at Christmas time, and I went in January, the first or second of January. I went to back to air, the place where I went to air control school at Glencoe, Georgia. That's now the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. And uh, when I got there, maybe two to three weeks later, I got a letter from him that said, thanks for accepting my proposal. <laughs> well, I'll be there in March, and, you know, stuff. So I realized what I did. I remembered writing the letter and everything, and I was very excited and I knew it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. They have a chapel on the base, and I went to the chapel and prayed about it and asked God to help me, and he did. And my mom arranged everything, including she bought my dress. The only thing I had to do is buy a penwa set and uh, his wedding ring. Wow. Okay. Well, how many people were at that wedding? Oh, probably 40. Okay, okay. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about Tony during that 15 months. Now, how many tours did he do in Vietnam? He did two tours. He went there originally to get his brother out of the front lines. His brother was in the jungles and in very dangerous territory. Um, And he was... um, known as Animal when he was out in the jungles because he was so fierce. And I've met a guy recently that his brother helped save his life. But anyway, Tony went to get him out of the front lines because he was on the air base. He thought he'd be safer. Mm -hmm. And he invoked the Sullivan Act to do that and um, stayed there to keep him from going back. So he did find him, and he yeah, was able to get yeah, him off they, the front lines. Huh? They kind of passed um, and met for an hour or two at Da Nang, and then David came back. And they both died from Agent Orange the same year. What year was that? 2009. Okay, explain to our listeners that may not know uh, about Agent Orange. Explain that a little bit, Paula. Well, Agent Orange was a defoliant that they sprayed, and anybody that was in Vietnam pretty much was exposed to it. And it has a lot of different side effects. It's still affecting children and families there now. I just saw a special on TV about it, and it's horrific what it does. So just a question. I mean, it- I imagine, I mean, they probably didn't. Did they know that that it was so dangerous? I don't know if they knew or not. They said they didn't know. Okay. 
But it's the government. <laughs> yeah. But <clears throat> the purpose was what? To, to clear the jungle? To so clear they, the jungle so they peep, the uh, Viet Cong couldn't hide. Uh-huh. They could. Okay. Okay. Uh, so was this Tony's first tour then? That was the first time he went. Okay. So he gets back from that, and two weeks later you, you all get married, right? No. Well, he came back. Um, the night before we got married. Well, two nights before we got married. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so... And it was kind of funny because we had to change the date of the wedding four times because, you know, coming back from Vietnam and the logistics of it was mm-hmm. um, crazy. So he'd say, he'd call me and say, I can't come, I'll be there this date, and it was a nightmare. So we finally gave up and we had the reception without him. <laughs> and my brother stood in as a proxy groom. We had Tony's picture on the cake because the cake and flowers, you couldn't, you know, change every time you turned around. And so my brother and I smashed cake in each other's face. It was so funny. Oh. And then the next week, Tony got there and we got married. Okay. And the preacher married us on Sunday night. He came in Friday night at midnight, and the preacher married us on Sunday night, and we went to the uh, state on Monday, which was St. Patrick's Day. Sunday was my birthday, and then Monday was St. Patrick's Day, and we went there to get our license. So our license is all in green, and we always celebrated two anniversaries. (laughs) And his mother was mortified Oh, don't tell anybody you weren't married. I said we were married. The preacher married us. That's what counts. So, wow, what a time that was was back in America. It's a very different world. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. So, now the the adventures then kind of really begin in your career. So, explain again how long before Tony goes on his second tour. Well, he went back. After we got married, he was here 30 days, and he went back. And um, and what was he doing over in Vietnam then? He was a supply sergeant, but he went out and searched villages. And um, Did you worry about guard, him? He was on guard duty, and yeah. he kept track of the dead bodies coming back. And some of the stuff he couldn't tell me because it was top secret. Okay. But okay. Um, And how long was he gone? It was gone, uh, well, from January of 68 to October of 69. His father died in October, and they didn't send him back. But they sent him to California. Okay. So he might as well have been gone. Okay. Because you weren't there together then? No, I was at Quantico. So, And in those days, you didn't just hop on a plane and fly across right. the country. So right. It was... Um, and how long was did that from happen? October of sixty nine to uh, February of seventy was when he got out. Wow. Okay. Anything else about Tony and his experience over there in Vietnam? Well, he went there to, like I said, to get his brother out in the Sullivan. He invoked the Sullivan Act. And explain to people what that is exactly. Well, there were five brothers that were killed in a submarine during World War II, and their family fought to not have the whole family 
in war at one time. So during times when we draft people, you can't have um, the only siblings all in war at the same time or in the same place. Okay. They can be enlisted, but they can't be in the same place. So Tony goes over, so he's in the same place, so he right. can get his brother out. Okay. And wasn't that battle, World War Two? was that the Guadalcanal battle with the Sullivan Brothers? I don't know. I, I, it seems like I just really that, that heard familiar. that. Yeah, so. But okay. anyway, so then Kelly Sullivan is one of their granddaughters that has, they named a ship after the Sullivans, and uh, she is like the mother of the ship, and she takes care of them and stuff, and I got to meet her in 2013. Oh. Yeah, yeah, and just really think about it. Here's these five brothers. They were all, they wanted to be together. And they all go down. Clearly, there was children back here. She was the only one. Okay. Okay. Wow. I think. The youngest brother was the only one that had kids. And I don't know if she was an only child or not. Okay. Well. Okay. Let's talk about you then. Uh, you, uh, you and Tony got married. And where does your marine experience go? Well, out of boot camp, um, that one trauma story kind of started things going. But um, when I got to Quantico, I went to air control school in Glencoe, Georgia, after Millington. And um, Glencoe was a place, at the time, the townspeople didn't like the military at all. So we were warned to stay on the base and if you went out to be with more than one or two people have a group so that was pretty scary to me it was 68 68 uh yeah 68 okay january and and like you mentioned times were really tumultuous in america oh, at that they time. were crazy so um through that experience I was uh, pretty good but the women uh, there was only three women in the class of air controllers about 40 guys and so it was very competitive they didn't want a woman to beat them out and okay so on that were you I mean you competed as people not as men and women right you competed same yes Every, okay. The air control school was pretty equal. I mean, we had separate barracks. We marched separately. When we lined up, we were separate. But as far as the same scores, everything, it was equally okay. as it should be. As it should. Okay. So uh, only three women. How many total people in the class? About 40. Okay. And so the guys, some of the guys didn't want to be... Uh, beat out by women on that. So. Oh, no, and they didn't want us there. Uh, the Marine Corps didn't want women at that time at all. And they made it very obvious. How so? Well, comments and um, through the years of being in the service, there was a number of incidents that were pretty horrific. But uh, there was a lot of things that happened to women that never got reported. Mm -hmm. And they just used, we had a woman in our barracks that was just used like, um, well, 
I don't even know how to describe it, but they put her in a barracks, or she went out with the guy who took her to barracks, and she stayed in that barracks for two weeks before anybody missed her. So just use your imagination. You know, Paula, I, I heard, uh, and how we met was through Cooper's Troopers. This is mm-hmm. a this is a, a really fine group of, of Marines that meets once a month up in northwest Denver. And as I, I've had the great honor to get to go to some of the luncheons and see many of the presentations, and I saw your presentation, and you were kind of, you were talking about some of these things back then, and I, I could feel just kind of a real discomfort from a, you know, a lot of the guys there. Um, Oh, yeah. I mean, they don't want to hear it. They, a lot of them didn't know it because there were only 2,500 women in the Marine Corps mm-hmm. at that time. They didn't have any exposure to it. Mm-hmm. So unless you were at a place where there were women, you wouldn't have a clue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even if you were, unless you were one of these scoundrels, you wouldn't know. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there were a lot of good guys there. Oh, yeah. And so... So it really... Would you... I mean, it was... It's a microcosm of society, and you think about people in general. There's good people and there's mm-hmm. bad people, and it's more concentrated in the service. Right. So this was not the big, uh, this was a microcosm. Yeah. It wasn't uh, a corporate thing like it became eventually uh-uh. with tail hook and all that. Uh-huh. But, um, I think because we were so small. It didn't, you know, and you didn't say anything in those days. Like, the first really serious incident I had was um, we had to clean spiders off the the deck underneath the the tower. Had a desk and a bathroom and a radar unit and stuff, and the ceiling had spider webs all on it. And so... The CO wanted us to use a broom and take it all down every night. Mm-hmm. And the guys would pin me down and take the broom with the spiders and put it in my face until I cried and peed my pants and did whatever. And it was, like I said, I grew up with four brothers, so I was pretty tough. And I put up with it for two weeks. And finally, I said something. And that night when I left the tower, I had an eight or ten inch knife put to my throat and was told if I said anything to anybody, they'd kill me. Oh, and you're 19 years old. You don't say anything to anybody. And I never did until um, I had been out of the service ten years before I ever even told my husband that. And I never told anybody uh, other than him until 2000 when I started going to the VA. This is troubling to me. Um, It was scary. And like I said, it was a different time and day. And so from that point on, I pretty much watched everything I was doing. But... um, they still found ways to get to you. And some of it was silly. I mean, like, initiation when you become an air controller, they send you out to look for flight line. 
and that's a row of planes. So yeah. you're yeah. looking for a roll of twine or something. And it's a, so you know that so would that be more like good fun, right? silly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and fun. And I was used to that in my family. We did jokes and stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, I walked up into the tower. The door to the tower was a, a floor, and I walked up one day, opened the door and was coming up, and we wore wigs back then because we wanted long hair, but in your uniform you had to have short hair. So they pulled my wig off. There was like ten guys up there. Pulled my wig off, pulled my blouse open, and just thought it was hysterical. Oh. And so, you know, I ran downstairs and got myself together and came back up and just... Pretty much ignored him. Okay. And went on, but it was. It was tough. It was tough. Okay. Well, we're going to go to break. Um, I'm talking with retired uh, or former Marine Sergeant uh, Paula Sarles, and uh, it was a it was quite a time back in in the Vietnam War, 1967, 1968, 1969. We're going to go to break. When we come back, any of the other stories that you want to share. Uh, regarding your experience and then what you are doing now. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. And when I go up to Cooper's Troopers, I mean, I can see the respect the guys have for you there because of all that you are doing for the Marines. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Uh, and uh, very excited to have in studio with me former Marine Sergeant Paula Sarles. Uh, you served during the Vietnam War. And uh, being a woman Marine was uh, probably not the easiest thing in the world that you could have done. Uh, actually, you, you've shared a couple of stories in the previous segment that, that I find troubling. Is there you know, anything else that you want to let us know about that? Well, I have, uh, when I finally went to the VA to talk to somebody about it, um, I had to sit down and write things down. And I have four pages, typewritten pages, of bullets of things similar to that. So we don't need to go into all of it. But and um, you, you probably weren't unique. Just, no. Yeah. Well, because there were so few of us, and not everybody was in a situation like in an air control tower where you're alone with men Got most it. of the okay. time. Okay. So people that worked in offices where there were 20 women didn't have the same experience or okay like i had a friend that was a chef and an officer well they didn't treat her that way cuz sure. they wanted to eat good <laughs> <laughs> imagine so how long were you in the marines then i was in originally for 3 years and i extended for 6 months to go to a radar school okay and i became a senior radar controller Okay. And when did you and Tony then actually get to start your life together? When he, he got out in February of 71, and I still had a year to go, almost to the day. Okay. And um, I think we were one day apart uh, in one year from when we got out. <laughs> okay. okay. So he came to Quantico, and um, and we lived there off base. Which is another story, because when he came, had I been a man, I would have gotten BOQ, or Housing and Food Allowance. Mm -hmm. But I was told, your husband's supposed to provide that for you. So, 
different day and different time. Different day and different And so we accepted that, and we went on with our lives. And in 76, I worked for IRS, and they came around with this new program called Equal Employment Opportunity. And they were talking about it, and something in my brain said, you need to write about this. So I wrote the Commandant of the Marine Corps letter and said I didn't think it was right that I didn't get that BOQ. Mm-hmm. And six months later, I got a check for $1,200 for a year of food and housing. Wow. <laughs> that was a good letter to write. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so you, you've now gotten out. Is there any other stories about your experience in the Marines? Because what you've done since has just been so amazing, Paula. Well, the one thing when I had to register, when I registered for the Women's Memorial, they want you to tell your most proud thing was when uh, <clears throat> when the blacks marched on D.C. for uh, income equality, and they built Resurrection City on the Mall in D.C. Mm-hmm. We landed and took an airplane off every a KC-130, which is a big plane, every three minutes. And they were all loaded with troops. And every street in and out of D.C. was lined with troops. And you think about that, that's very scary today. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they thought they were going to do. Mm-hmm. But I worked 36 hours straight on that because I was the senior radar controller. And I only had a few breaks to take a nap here and there. And that was the one time when I really felt like I was serving and doing things. You know, that's bringing important. planes in and out yeah. really fast, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And so um, that was the most proud that I was. And then the first Harrier, uh, before the Marine Corps ever bought Harrier jets, they brought one into Quantico. All the test planes came in there. And I was the air controller that told it to land, which was cool. But yeah. It was a neat plane, and it was like state-of-the-art at the time. And so uh, in 2017, we did the 40th anniversary for the Marine Corps Memorial in Golden. And the Harrier Squadron was supposed to do a flyover for us. And I talked to the guy, and I told him that. And he was just so impressed. <laughs> oh, that is that is. And he neat. was excited to do it, but they had technical issues and couldn't do the flyover. But it, it was kind of fun to talk to somebody all these years later that's flying them. Oh, yes. And the history they've had with the Marine Corps. Oh. Well, Paula, you, you, you've done so much. Now, you are a gold star wife. Right. And explain that to our listeners. Well, in general, people think that gold star wives or mothers' families are when someone is in a war and they're killed, their family and their wife becomes gold star. And there's certain benefits associated with that. Um, but it's, you benefits know. Benefits that the government pays. The government yeah. pays. Mm-hmm. And most of the gold stars that I know work to help other veterans or other gold star wives. And, um, I'm a member of the Gold Star Wives of America, and they work on legislation to help um, 
wives of uh, men that were killed. What I didn't know, and I got involved in um, Veteran Affairs in 2000, so I'd been in it nine years when my husband died, and I had no idea um, that if you die, if you're a veteran and you die, and you're rated 100% disabled when you die from war mm-hmm. wounds or something that happened to you in the war, your spouse is eligible to be a gold star wife, mm-hmm. which gives you a pension or a gold star spouse. Now, um, you're entitled to a type of pension called DIC. And most people don't know that. And so one of my missions is to make sure that, especially Vietnam veterans, mm-hmm. because we didn't have anything to do with the VA um, when we got out. And there was a very a big distress, and I can tell you why. But anyway, uh, I want people... Vietnam veterans to get registered with the VA and make sure if you're you have a rating that you get it renewed or checked on every so often because that means a lot to your spouse when you die. Okay. Okay. And um, and Tony died from Agent Orange. Okay. And um, his brother died the same year. And so his wife and I both received, um, we had, we, because they were rated 100%, we were eligible for a little bit of life insurance. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any life insurance on Tony to speak of. Mm-hmm. So that helped me pay bills and things mm-hmm. when he died. And then I get this little bit of money every month, and that allows me to do the other things mm-hmm. that I do. I wouldn't be able to do half of what I do without it. So, you know, Paula, I think that people take for granted the kind of the last full measure of devotion, whether or not it's on the battlefield, or as you mentioned from uh, from Agent Orange. But it's something that is so uniquely American. I think that people put their lives on the line so that other people can live in freedom, and I, I don't think that we stop enough to just think about what that means and to say thank you. Yeah. Well, you go to other countries and you see how they live and you appreciate what we have here mm-hmm. a lot more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to me, I didn't have to go to a lot of other countries. I went to Mexico just across the border and then I went to Canada and I could tell a difference. Mm-hmm. And the minute I crossed that border, it was like, I'm not home. I want to go home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's something very special about America. There, there really is. And tell, please share with our listeners all of the other things that you're doing. Well, um, I, joined, I joined the Women Marines Association in 2000. And my husband and I hadn't had anything to do with the military when we got out of the service, we pretty much gave everything away that we had or destroyed it that was military-related because Vietnam veterans were treated really bad. And, excuse me. Yeah, I remember a friend of mine said that her husband uh, was in the Navy when he returned from Vietnam. He was walking through the San Francisco 
International Airport, and somebody actually spit on him. Oh, yeah. And my husband had to clock somebody for something I said. But if you, if you were a man, you were treated bad. But if you were a woman, it was even worse. When I went to look for a job, I was literally kicked in the rear end out the door and spat. Literally? Literally. Wow. And I almost fell on my face. And not just once. So, and that was in Houston, which you would think is a bastion of conservatism and patriotism. Not true. Not the case. And so, for me, it was even harder. And uh, so, anyway, I joined the Women Marines Association. I was looking for something. My husband got a license plate that said he was a Vietnam veteran, and I was looking for something to say I was a veteran. Mm -hmm. And I ran into these World War II ladies and went to a meeting. That was in February of 2000. By the end of the year, I was the secretary for our chapter, um, And I was acting as treasurer and kind of running the show. And then in September of 2000, this three-star general, Mutter, who is also from Colorado, called me and wanted me to do a luncheon for a convention two years from that day. And I had never been to a convention of any kind or had anything to do with organizations. I had no clue what I was doing. I said, well, let me think about it. She says, okay, I'll call you tomorrow morning. What's your work number? <laughs> so that started my journey. And um, she has been a mentor and been pushing me. Um, I can't even tell you the things she has pushed me to do way beyond my comfort zone. I became, in 2005, I became the national president. And in 2004, we started a history collection here in Colorado that's now the definitive collection on the history of women Marines. Oh, and where can people find that or see that? Well, it's called the Women of the Corps Collection. Um, I think it's in Texas, but I don't know. There's a foundation okay. uh, that raises money for it. But we gave it, to when we were finished with it, we had the largest exhibit in history on the history of women marines here at the uh, grand hyatt downtown okay. 3000 square foot ballroom set up like a museum so it travels around then well we've done traveling exhibits okay. and um like i said we turned it over to national and then they gave it to this foundation got so it. i don't i've got lost it. track of got, it. It is. got it got it okay now let's talk a little bit about uh, the Marine Memorial right here in Gold. Right. Tell us about that. Well, as part of the Women Marines Association, I got involved with other organizations, networking and stuff, and I ran into the Marine Corps League, and they built this memorial. It wasn't just the League. There were a lot of Marines here in Colorado. In 1977, it's the U U.S. Marine Corps Memorial, and... Um, the commandant dedicated it. The governor gave the property to us. And so they've had little ceremonies there on Memorial Day and uh, the Saturday before Veterans Day, always a ceremony at 2 o'clock, and it's been that way forever. 
And I just, the first time my husband and I went there, we were just taken aback, and it was a very healing moment. Mm -hmm. It was like we were welcome home. And I say that because I I know how he felt, because we went through 40 years together, and Nobody I know everything well. he was feeling, yeah. and uh, and vice versa. Yeah. So we walked there, and we were holding hands, and we just looked at each other, and it was amazing. And so we started serving there and doing helping out, and eventually I became president of the association that handles it. And leadership Jefferson County came to us and said you should do this or that or the other thing and improve it. And st- I said, what? And I'm a big thinker. I mm-hmm. think big. Mm-hmm. I said, well, you need to put us in touch with this and that. And that started the ball rolling. They put us in touch with an architect at Matrix Design that um, came up with the design idea. I got it all approved, and we're on our way now to – we formed a foundation, and we're going to – remodel the memorial to be what it once was. It was the only thing you saw on the horizon when you went out of the city or in came into the city. And the flag was prominent. When you came in, you saw the American flag and the Marine Corps flag. And so we want it to be something that makes Colorado and makes Marines everywhere proud. Going east and west on I-70, they're going to see it. Awesome. And so it's going to become a national uh, landmark. It's a city landmark right now for Golden, their first landmark. But we want to build it into something really great. So on that note, we're just about out of time, Paula Sarles, but when you see the American flag today, what what goes through your mind? hard for me to say it's freedom and um, I can do what I do because I have the freedom to do it Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't have that freedom but for the grace of God right and the people that served our country and died for it and whether you like what people say you agree or disagree we have the freedom to say it. And my husband hated Jane Fonda. And I said, yeah, but people fought and died so she could do what she did. And you might not like it, but she's free to do it. And there isn't another country. She'd be dead a long time ago if she'd have been in another country. And what she had done is she had sided with the enemy for mm-hmm. young people that don't realize that. Yeah. And actually, Tony, he said it all, that that's something about this country is you have the freedom to disagree, and that's one of the beautiful that's things right. about this. So, well, um, former Marine Sergeant Paula Sarles, we are out of, t- uh, out of time right now, but thank you so much for sharing your oh, story. You. Uh, greatly appreciate it. It is an honor. And these interviews are truly changing my life. So thank you so much. This is Kim Munson with the World War II Project. Signing off, we'll be at the same place, same time next week. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the Emeritchick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.